There are over a million embryos, little tiny image bearers of God, frozen on ice in the United States, created through IVF. What's the answer to this? Should Christians be adopting these embryos? We'll be getting into this question, also talking more about the ethical problems with surrogacy, surrogacy contracts, IVF in general, um, and then answering some policy questions for um, centering on children and their welfare in this episode of Relatable, which is with Katie Faust, founder and director of Them Before Us. This is part two of a two-part conversation. Go back and listen to part one for the full context. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. That's GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. So for these um, a million, you said a million embryos, and as pro-lifers, we believe that those are human beings made in the image of God. We know that those are human beings made in the image of God. What do you think about, I'm sure you get this question a lot, I do too, what do you think about adoption of these frozen embryos? They're people. So are all of those babies that you just talked about at these orphanages. So what's what's the right answer? If someone wants to adopt one of these frozen embryos, they're deciding between that and maybe, you know, a five-year-old or a child who already, who is, you know, walking around in the world. Mm-hmm. Like what's what's the right and moral way to think about that? So the first thing that we need to realize is that when conception occurs, the people responsible for that child are the child's parents. And, you know, I would say in the world of an unplanned pregnancy, the solution is not adoption and it's not abortion. It's parenting. If you have a child that you have created through sex, the solution is for you to parent them, for you to reorient your life, you and the father around the baby. So the child's right to life is protected and the child's right to be known and loved by their mother and father is protected. So the same is true with children who are frozen, surplus ch- children, the ones that are on ice. It's not somebody else's job, right? It's We don't want to kill the child because they are a surplus kid. And it's not the job of somebody else to come in and raise the child. They are your babies. You made them. Go get them. You might have to take out a loan, buy a bigger house, reorganize your career plan. I know, I know a lot of even Christians who made 12 embryos. And because you need to have multiple embryos available for a bunch of different tries. Um, and the first two tries were successful. So, and some of them didn't make it. And now they've got two kids and they're busy and they're spending money on those kids. And now their career is taking a different turn, but they're paying the storage fee for these seven kids. The solution is not to donate. The, so here's, so, all right, here we go. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine has some recommendations for what you do with those surplus embryos. The first option is to thaw and discard. Okay. So, I mean, like, think, I mean, like, the dehumanizing language is already just crazy, right? Thaw them and discard them. The second option is to donate them to research, right? Destroy those little lives so that we can better figure out how to increase our fertility rate successes in the future. The third suggestion that they have is donate the baby to another couple, okay? So none of those three options honors children's right to life and right to be known and loved by their mother and father. 
the only option where children are not bearing the burden for adults, further bearing the burden for adults, is for the adults who created them to go back and get them and put them in their womb and give them a chance at life. That is the only child honoring option. Now, we've got a million kids on ice in this country. By some estimates, 20 to 40% of them have been functionally abandoned. Some of them have been on ice for 30 years or more. Some of their parents have died. Some of them are not paying the storage fee and they can't even track them down. So what do you do for those kids? Well, the answer is not to thaw and discard them or donate them to research or donate them to another couple. In that situation, the extreme cases where there's no option to protect the right to life or to protect the right to their mother and father, the only child honoring option is not embryo donation, it's embryo adoption. And that is where the prospective parents go through an adoption process and they are screened like every other adoptive couple has to be screened, where whenever possible, we opt for an open adoption where the child is going to have access to their birth parents and at least information about who their birth parents are, if not an ongoing relationship. But then in those situations, you need to be aware that that is not a cost-free situation for the child. And in that situation, when we are properly understanding embryo adoption, not embryo donation, that is adults doing hard things on behalf of children. Those couples need to go in with the mindset of, I am here to shepherd you through what is going to be the kind of questions that children in our species have never had to ask ever before, right? Why is it that I am older than, I'm genetically older than my own mother, right? You're going to have to answer those questions to your kids. Why is it that, you know, I was born and, you know, my parents had already died by the time that I was born. And we are going to have some incredible struggles parenting those kids. So parents who are mothers and fathers through traditional adoption, we already know um, that these kinds of questions are coming for our kids, right? We already know that they're going to have, they're asking us why, why did my mom or dad give me up? You know, why is it that I was removed from my home? And we've already recognized that part of what we're going to do as a mom or dad is shepherd our children through what's very often painful questions. So people who are adopting embryos um, are going to have to prepare for a whole nother level of that. So it is, um, it is not a baby needs a womb, parents can, you know, help out, ding, problem solved kind of thing. Um, it is, first of all, the people who made the baby need to go get the baby. But if there's no other option, then embryo adoption is the way to go. Now, the sperm and egg donor children that I know, most of them don't support embryo adoption at all because they are concerned that both on a public level, but also in terms of the industry, that it won't do anything to stem the tide of the, the mass creation of surplus embryos. If there's a perception that, oh, no problem, the surplus embryos are just going to get adopted, then there's really no stop, right? There's no reason for either the public to say, that doesn't seem right, or for the fertility industry to say, maybe we shouldn't do this very often. So it's a very complicated question. All I can say is that if you do go into it, it has to be with the child in mind, not because it's solving a problem for you. Brave Books is a wonderful sponsor because they are an amazing company that offers an amazing product to you parents. So a lot of you are asking me, like, how do I teach my kids about 
gender or about these big major cultural, moral, political issues in a way that they can understand, in a way that is appropriate for them. And Brave Books is helping you do this. They have an amazing subscription. They give you a picture book every month shipped right to your front door that deals with one of these issues. So whether it's the sanctity of life, the reality of male and female, even things like the Second Amendment, they are breaking down these issues in a way that is understandable and entertaining for kids. I would say about kindergarten through fourth grade. That's probably the ideal age group demographic for these books. They're super cute. They're really well illustrated. The characters are adorable. And in an age where you go to the library and you see things like pride displays and you don't know what kind of hidden messages are going to be in kids' books, you can rely on Brave Books to get a new, entertaining, and actually edifying an educational book every month shipped to your front door. If you use my promo code Ali, you get 20% off your subscription and a free book. So a free book and 20% off your subscription with code Ali at bravebooks.com, bravebooks.com code Ali. And I would also say that you should be able to implant if you are going to do that, which I agree there's you know, it's very complicated. And while we don't say that the five-year-old's life is more important than the embryo's life, we don't say that. That's part of why we're pro-life. Um, but also, like, there's, a, I would just say, like, there's a lot of questions when you're deciding also, like, why you want to adopt an embryo versus why you wouldn't want to adopt the five-year-old. There's even some heart individual things that I think someone should pray and think through. But I, I think that you would agree that you also need to be able to implant that embryo in you as the mother. Because I've heard of couples, um, I got a message the other day saying, okay, Here's a couple. It's actually their own embryo, so it's a little bit different. I could see a scenario where it's not the own embryo. But so uh, this couple, they have an embryo on ice, but the mother has been told you cannot carry a child anymore. You can't. She might have even had a hysterectomy. She can't carry a child. So they are considering hiring a surrogate to carry their embryo. That's a very difficult situation as someone who is not for indefinitely freezing that child, discarding that child, and also not for uh, surrogacy, that uh, really my answer is like, well, that's why we shouldn't have gotten into this problem right. in the first that's place, right. but you're there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So whether it's that situation or you've got a couple that maybe they're older, they're 45 and they're like, you know what? We want to adopt this embryo, but we need to hire a surrogate to do it. I would say no, at least in that second situation. No, you shouldn't be adopting an embryo. I don't know the answer to the first situation when it's your own embryo. I just don't know the answer. Well, it's, you know, I get um, Google alerts every day for surrogacy and for a variety of different, you know, tags. And regularly things will come up. Like right now, there is a um, couple whose baby is stuck in Mexico. You know, yes. this New Jersey couple created a child using an egg donor, the father's sperm, they went to Mexico because it was a lot cheaper, cheaper than using a white womb to go, you know, gestate their child. But now the courts won't let the baby come back to the United States mm -hmm. and they're stuck. Why? Why are they stuck? Because they have participated in a practice that is virtually indistinguishable from child trafficking. Right, right. In adoption, right, there's a lot, you know, we talk at them before us, we talk about how from the children's rights perspective, adoption and reproductive technologies are polar opposites in terms of 
the way that the practice is is conducted. And one of the big differences is in adoption, you can never, never pay the birth parents for the baby, right? That's like, there are all kinds of safeguards to ensure that money never goes from the people that are going to be adopting the child to the people that are the, the child's first family. You can't pay the birth mother, you can't pay the extended family, you can't pay the father. If you do, it's no longer an adoption. It is trafficking. So what happens in surrogacy is the mother and father, the intended mother and the biological father are directly paying the surrogate for the baby. And from international practice, like especially when you're looking at intercountry adoption, that is child trafficking. And so, of course, as always, the news is framing this as, oh, my gosh, this couple is suffering so bad. They can't get their baby home. And the reality is it's his baby but it's not her egg. It's never been her womb. And so like, is it her baby, right? They are paying two different women, the genetic mother and the birth mother to hand over her baby to somebody else. And so these conflicts come up. Oh, what do we do? Now we've got this child that's stateless and can't, you know, go home to their parents. Maybe we should legitimize commercial surrogacy. No, when you come into Challenges like we have an IVF child. Now I don't have a womb. Should we use a surrogate? The answer is not. Let's legitimize, incentivize and endorse these scenarios. But we need to step back and say, how do we never get into this scenario ever again? How sh this should never be happening. But instead, you take these sort of problem cases and say, look how hard this is on adults. Maybe we should make this easier on them. And the answer is no. We need to go back to the reality that you should not be violating children's right to life through these technologies. You shouldn't be violating children's rights to their mother and father. So there's confusion about who the mother is. And you shouldn't be violating children's right to be in relationship with the only woman that they know and paying her to sever that bond. No, like it when there are troubled scenarios, you need to say, maybe we should cease the activity and the practices creating these troubled scenarios. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Paris Hilton, a few months ago, I'm sure you saw the story. She said that she has, there's so many problems just in this headline, just in this quote alone, that they have 20 embryos on ice. You know, they have unlimited money, so they can do this. They have 20 embryos on ice. The reason that they're not implanting those, though, is because they're all boys, and she's waiting for a girl. So obviously, there's a problem. She's not going to implant all 20. She's probably going to discard them, donate them, whatever. Maybe she'll indefinitely pay for them to stay on ice because she has some kind of guilt, although she probably doesn't know fully why. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't understand, one, how common it is to have at least one or two children still on ice when it comes to even mm -hmm. Christian IVF couples. But yeah. also, you mentioned this earlier, the eugenics process that goes into this. Oh, this is a strong embryo. This embryo doesn't have genetic anomalies. Mm -hmm. This one is a boy. I'm always so... I'm always so stunned at how many, for example, like when two men are using the IVF and surrogacy process, like how f lucky they get to have two twin boys or to have a boy and a girl or to have, I mean, it seems like the gender they want is the gender they get. I think people don't realize like how often eugenics actually plays a part in the IVF process, not for everyone, um, but I think it's a lot more common than we realize. And we don't call it eugenics. I don't know what we call it. We just call it, again, meeting the parents' desires. But this is pretty common, right? Yeah. 
And, you know, IVF costs like twelve to $20,000 per cycle. Surrogacy pregnancies are going to definitely run you in the six figures. When you're paying that much money for a baby, you need to get your order exactly right. And so you do want to select the sex that you want. In fact, you know, there's a there's a situation in California where you've got a lesbian couple that is suing the clinic because they implanted the wrong embryo, right? They ordered a girl, but they got a boy. And you've got a similar situation with a gay couple who ordered a boy, but got a girl. And so now they are suing the manufacturer, right? Because in this case, you can actually return the product, but you can sue them for faulty, um, you know, design. And so what happens when we are making children rather than begetting children? Well, we think that we own those children, right? And if, if children are begotten, but not made, we go into it with the mindset of this is a gift that I'm going to receive. I don't get to decide the hair color of my child. I don't get to decide if it's a boy or a girl. I am going into it with the mindset of really, I exist for them. But you go into it with the mindset of I am making the child. It's very easy to get into the mindset of they exist for me, right? So there's unfortunately no shortage of cases, um, both celebrity couples who are, you know, waiting to implant the child that they want or gay couples who are um, discarding the unwanted children that that didn't come out exactly as they want. You probably have heard about the, the situation with the woman who was pregnant as a surrogate. Um, the Center for Bioethics and Culture, Jennifer Law's organization, broke this story just last week um, where she was pregnant with the child of two men, the child of two men, right? And what that means, anytime a child has two fathers, you're really just talking about a child that has been separated from their mother and is going to be raised by an unrelated man. That's really what that means, you know, from a children's rights perspective. Which is statistically and, dangerous, as you've mentioned. Which is which is always statistically risky for the child. Um, and the she, you know, the surrogate got a cancer diagnosis um, at 24 weeks, realized she had to have very serious chemotherapy at 26 weeks. It was going to put the risk, the life of the child at risk. She sought to deliver the baby rather than abort the baby. But the gay couple threatened to sue her into oblivion because they did not want a premature baby. They did not want the health problems that could go along with a baby being born at 26 weeks. So they insisted that she abort. And we don't know exactly how that story ended, if she found a place to deliver or if she found a place to abort. But the baby is no longer alive. And the couple did not want the baby delivered early either because they did not want their DNA out in the world. They would rather have their own child, which was the genetic child of one of those two men, die than alive and being loved by somebody else. So that mindset that this child exists for me, if they're not exactly right to my exact specifications, sue them, kill them. I mean, really what we are talking about is we are returning to the commodification of human beings that we fought a civil war to end. I mean, that is really what's going on in the world of big fertility right now. Okay, y'all, school is in full swing. Things are crazy. I know that you're super busy. You're wondering as a mom, like, how are you going to find time to do all the things that you need to do? Why don't you allow yourself one less thing 
to worry about. And that is going to the grocery store and trying to pick out the right cuts of meat, trying to fit meat into your budget that is actually good for your family. Why don't you just allow Good Ranchers to do that for you? If you get all of your meat from Good Ranchers, you're guaranteeing a few things. You're guaranteeing that you'll have a freezer full of meat. That's just a sense of security and comfort for your family. You get meat shipped to your front door on dry ice every month, so you don't have to think about it. You're guaranteeing that you will pay the same price for that meat for the next two years, so you don't have to worry about the rising cost of inflation. You're guaranteeing that your meat will actually be from America, not just packaged in America, but actually from American farms and ranches. You are also guaranteeing that at least one part of your meal every night is already accounted for and is already healthy and nutritious and protein-packed for your family. That's why I love Good Ranchers. We get all of our meat, all of our steak, our better than organic chicken, our seafood from Good Ranchers. It makes my life so much easier that I just don't have to think about this. Like I said, they're locking in your price too for the next two years. So you don't even have to worry about inflation when it comes to your meat. Make your life easier. Take one thing off your plate by adding Good Ranchers to your plate. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. You get $30 off your order when you do. That's even more of an incentive. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. That's not all that uncommon. As Jennifer Law has talked about before, some of these surrogacy contracts explicitly say, if we want you to terminate, as long as it's legal to do so, you have to terminate. And I think, you know, the irony is, is that a lot of these couples, I would bet if I were a betting person that this gay couple that uh, pushed the surrogate into termination is probably pro-choice, probably has uttered the phrase, my body, my choice. So it's your body, Mm -hmm. your choice until it comes to surrogacy, then all of a sudden what really matters is that the it's it now you acknowledge it's a baby but that you don't want the baby to exist and it's actually killing a child um i got i posted about this and actually as we're recording this i have not interviewed that surrogate as we're recording this i am interviewing her tomorrow but the episode will probably be out before yours and mine does. So I can't say how the story concludes yet, but those listening to this now have probably already heard it. So it's kind of confusing with all these pre-taped episodes. But I'm glad you found her. I'm glad she's going to talk to you. Yes. We need more stories highlighting the reality of surrogacy. And especially when it comes to abortion, you know, in surrogacy, abortion functions as quality control which she experienced, but and quantity control, right? And it's so fascinating because you're right, the whole my body, my choice thing goes out the window. It's very interesting when um, New York legalized commercial surrogacy, one of their big um, triumphs was that in the in New York, if your surrogate is pregnant and she wants to terminate the pregnancy, she can, right? That was their, that was their women's lib sort of triumph of their commercial surrogacy bill. And so now in the state of New York, you can kill your own child and you can kill somebody else's child. And contractually, there's no problem. Wow. And, you know, speaking to that, when I posted about this, I got a couple messages, probably more than I even saw. But here's one message to your point. A friend of mine's mom was a surrogate and three embryos took. The biological parents said they didn't want the risk of three babies and had one of them aborted. The surrogate, my friend's mom, wanted the third baby and offered to adopt him or her, but it was in her contract that she had to have an abortion and kill the third 
baby. And you know, this isn't just true in surrogacy that I didn't realize, honestly, until maybe a couple years ago, that reduction was something that was very often recommended when moms become pregnant with multiples, especially through Mm -hmm. IVF, because it's more likely to get pregnant with multiples. Um, And so uh, very often in IVF, moms themselves will abort selectively reduce one of their children because they don't want, you know, they don't want quintuplets or they don't want quadruplets or even twins. Um, But this is certainly true in surrogacy and the woman caring really doesn't have a say. And then I got another message uh, from someone who said, I'm an ultrasound tech and had a patient in a similar experience. But in this case, the baby had a very minor finding, a slightly abnormally curved Mm -hmm. spine like scoliosis. The dads Mm -hmm. forced her to terminate at 22 weeks. She begged to adopt the baby, but they refused. She was horribly traumatized and broken. So many lessons in this that one thing that I see is that these women who are not biologically related to these babies have formed a bond with these babies at 24 weeks that they are willing to say, I will raise this child and that the parents don't have a bond. (laughs) They don't have the connection, even though they do have that biological matter there. And they're, you know, they just say, just, you know, kill the child because we don't want the inconvenience. I, I feel for these women and obviously feel very much for these children. Well, we need to recognize that that surrogate is doing exactly what she was made to do. She was made to love that baby. And if we can, I think, especially most of us who have been moms, recognize, well, obviously she loves those babies. How much more so the baby loves her back, Mm, right? Because that is the only person the baby knows. You know, even after children are on this side of the womb, they go through a phase, you know, from like four months to seven months where they're growing in their awareness of the world and they think that they're their mother, right? That's why you start to have the separation anxiety Mm. when the mom leaves the room because the baby thinks I've left the room because they can't distinguish themselves from the mother. They're that closely bonded. How much more so when the child is literally inside of her that he is bonded to her. And so the whole premise of surrogacy is founded on the idea that the baby's like a magnet. You know, you can just, boop, they'll just attach here or separate them and then easily attach somewhere else. That's not how babies are. That's not how mothers are. Yeah. That's not how babies are. So it's, it really is insisting that children sacrifice something that they are made for. I mean, like, think about it. Like it is the only relationship in our life where we are connected by a literal cord. Yeah. You have to literally cut a cord to separate the child from the mother. You don't think that there's going to be a massive emotional bond between that baby and that mom. We can see it in the moms and the babies. So that's, you know, that's our appeal is we want people to be champions of those children because they are losing something that they not only have a natural right to, but that they long for and they crave. Yeah. You and I were both going back on a on a post that I had posted about Chrissy Teigen's um, surrogacy on Instagram, where someone said, um, you know, I'm a Christian and I've been a surrogate. And look, we know, we understand the terms before it starts, but that's not really the point, is it? The baby doesn't understand the terms. (laughs) The baby didn't sign on the dotted line. The baby doesn't understand, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to bond with this heartbeat, with this smell, with this feel. Mm -hmm with this woman. Um, Again, it's just amazing how even Christians, I mean, all of us have probably been at this place at some point, but we really need that perspective shift 
It's not about mm-hmm. parents understanding yeah. the terms. It's not even about what parents very, very strongly desire. It's about the this needs and the well-being of the kids. Go ahead. You absolutely see the limits of the consent arguments here. Yeah. Right. Because in a lot of these situations, like I think about Chrissy Teigen's um, surrogate pregnancy, right? She's talking about how I, I mean, we're like best friends. She's going to be in my child's life. I love her so much. She totally freely consented to this. We're both so happy with the result. I mean, both women are happy. They all consented. The, the biological father obviously consented too. Who didn't consent? The child did not consent. The child will never consent. A child will never consent to the commercial intentional separation of them from their birth mother, from their mother. The child always has a right to and longs for and seeks to know and be near the woman that just gave birth to them. Sometimes in tragic situations, the baby loses that relationship, right? But to inflict it intentionally and commercially is a massive injustice. Yes. Okay. I just want to end on this because I meant to talk about this earlier and then, um, and then we did it. But what do you think about just from like a policy perspective? What do you think about what's going on in Italy right now? We've got a conservative prime minister, Giorgia Maloney, um, that she has pushed through parliament a bill that would make it a crime for Italian citizens to try to become parents through a surrogate's pregnancy abroad. It's already illegal there in Italy. By the way, surrogacy is an, is illegal in a lot of places um, for some of the reasons that we that we listed but this would actually you can't even go abroad to get a surrogate and to carry a child um, and then she also, this is according to Reuters and the AP. Uh, her government has ordered city council, councils to stop registering the children of same-sex couples, saying the move applies to a ruling by Italy's top appeals court. This would limit recognition of parental rights to the biological parent only in families with same-sex parents. Maloney says that for a child to grow up while they need a mother and father, even if decades of research say otherwise of course that's according to a left-wing perspective um so tell us what you think about this from a policy perspective ensuring the rights of a child in this way you think it's good absolutely maloney's right on and you know i'm reading articles that talk about how i mean it's it's hilarious you're they're quoting gay couples who are saying you know Maloney's ban on surrogacy is the new using gays as the new target of the far right. But the reality is that the ban on surrogacy in Italy applies to everybody. It's not just gay people that cannot use surrogates abroad and bring them home. It, it applies to married heterosexual couples as well. So it's not anti-gay. It is pro-child. And that's actually what we're talking. We're always talking about is this pro-child. And the answer is, if it's pro-child, then yes, that is good policy. So it's amazing to me because I hear, I like, I read these quotes of gay couples that are saying, this law will sterilize gay couples in Italy. And it's just fascinating that they think that it's the law that is making them sterile and not the very realities of their bodies, right? That they're in a sterile relationship. And that is why they're struggling with pregnancy right now not because the law is prohibiting them from getting pregnant. It is the the physical realities of their own bodies that are saying, look, you both have the same half of the reproductive system. If you want to have a baby, you need to find the other half of your reproductive system, right? But because, again, what biology is prohibiting the law, they want the law to accomplish. And Maloney has said no. She's also said that two women can't be on birth certificates. This is correct. 
because the birth certificate does not exist for adults. And that is honestly how a lot of same-sex couples see it. I want the validation of both my biological child and my wife's, you know, my partner's name on the birth certificate because that validates me, right? But that's not what the birth certificate is for. Children actually have a right to have their identity preserved on their birth certificate. This is something that's outlined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. The birth certificate exists to anchor the child's identity, the biological facts of their birth, so that they can, because the child's going to need that information later on. And one of the best ways that children, one of the best chances they have to access their biological identity, the knowledge of both people to whom they have a natural right, is that piece of paper. But in the name of adult equality, right, and progress for adults, many adults are now using that not as an instrument to serve the rights and well-being of children, but almost as like a second marriage license. So that's not what it's for. Biological parents need to go on birth certificates. Adoptive parents should have their parental rights secured in another way. But what's so interesting is um, we have been putting adoptive parents on birth certificates in this country for a long, long time. And that originated because they didn't want the stigma, right, of adopted children having parents that were not listed on their birth certificates raising them. And so they did that thinking this is going to be helpful to adoptees, right, for us to erase their first family from their birth certificate. And we will issue them a new birth certificate with their adoptive parents. But what's so fascinating is adoptee groups here in the United States have been lobbying for decades to get access to what? To their original birth certificate. Because that is one of the main ways they can find out the question, answer the question, who am I? Because that will tell them whose am I? So birth certificates exist for kids. They don't exist for adoptive parents. They don't exist for gay parents. They exist to record the facts of children's birth. And if an adoption needs to take place, and if you need to secure parentage, you need to do that in a way that does not adulterate the child's birth certificate. So I'm a Maloney fan. If you're watching this, Georgia, <laughs> hook me up, hit me up. I want to know, I want to cheer you on because she is standing firm, right? Against the commodification of children and insisting that kids need a mom and dad. Yes. Prime Minister, come on the show too. Reach out yeah. to Katie, but also reach out to Relatable. I would love to have her on the show. Okay, guys, another sponsor for the day is Crowd Health. Crowd Health is not health insurance. It is a health share company that allows you to access telemedicine and bill negotiation for just a $50 a month membership fee. So I don't have to tell you how complicated and what a headache regular health insurance can be with the rising premiums, increased deductibles, with the doctor's networks. I mean, especially with unexpected medical events, big medical events, it can make you feel even worse than maybe you did before. But if you want peace of mind, you still need that health care coverage, you want to opt out of the restrictive health insurance process, then you need to look at Crowd Health. You pay that $50 membership fee, you join the crowd, you help each other cover your medical expenses. No doctors' networks. They really do make this easier for you. Go to joincrowdhealth.com, use promo code ALLY at checkout. That's joincrowdhealth.com. Crowd Health is not health insurance. Learn more at joincrowdhealth.com. That's joincrowdhealth.com.
What do you think about uh, gay adoption? Do you think it should be legal for two men or two women to adopt? So let's be very clear about what adoption is. Um, a lot of people say, do gay people have a right to adopt? And the answer is no, not at all. But that's because nobody has a right to adopt. The sweet Christian heterosexual couple that is dealing with infertility, they don't have a right to adopt either. No adult has a right to adopt. Children who have lost their parents have a right to be adopted. So this is, again, where adoption is drastically different from third-party reproduction. In third-party, in big fertility, the adult is the client. The goal is to get them a baby no matter the cost, no matter the cost to their checkbook, no matter the cost to the child's life, to their rights, to their mother and father, to their health. doesn't matter. The, the adult is the client. You get them the baby. In the world of adoption, the child is the client. When I was working at the adoption agency before I had kids, um, the founder would say, Katie, the adults are paying us, but they are not the client. The goal is not to give every adult who wants them a baby. The goal is to find loving parents for every child that has lost them. So if we are successful, every child will be placed in a home, but not every adult who wants a kid who applies to this agency is going to have a child placed with them. So what does it look like for the child to be the client? That means that, and this is reflected in adoption best practice, that the rights and well-being, the best interest of the child is elevated to the highest good. That is what dictates agency decision-making. So what is the best interest of the child? Many things. Number one, that they be placed with relatives whenever possible, whenever it is safe and healthy for the child to be connected to relatives, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, so they can remain in relationship with their kinship network. That is a high priority. The next thing that's a high priority is to be placed with a man and woman because the child is going to benefit from maternal love and paternal love. Their development is going to be maximized in the complementary ways that mothers and fathers interact with their children. The child would be placed in a married heterosexual couple because marriage advantages children in the sense that it is the way that children experience stability in their lives. Then you also have to evaluate, is this couple ready to take on a sibling group? so the children can remain together if there's a sibling group, for example, in foster care? Are they able to care for the child's special needs if the child has a cleft lip or a cleft palate or um, some kind of hole in their heart that's going to need repair? Um, are they financially ready? All of these kinds of things. So that is the list that you go through to determine the child's best interest. Now, Sometimes you don't have a heterosexual couple who's financially ready, who's able to take sibling groups, who understands that special need, especially in this country with foster care. There are not enough moms and dads that are making themselves available for some of these children. And in some of those cases, a single or a same-sex couple may be the best or the only option for kids. So my suggestion is for the Christians who oppose, who think children who think gays shouldn't be raising kids. Go adopt. You go get in line. And don't get in line for the white drug-free infant. Go for the kids that nobody wants. Go for the older kids. Go for the sibling groups. Go for the kids with special needs, right? If you're going to, sometimes same-sex couples take on kids that nobody else wants. So the solution is want them. Go and get them. And 
that's a hard message to hear, right? Because those are challenging cases. But if you have a problem with gays adopting, the answer is you adopt instead. I, I've never thought about it to the conclusion that you went to that basically you should be adopting the kids that really don't, most people don't want to adopt. I'm sure that's going to be difficult for some people to hear. Um, but I, I mean, obviously I agree with you. We should, That I mean, I typically say we should do everything possible to make sure kids have both a mother and a father. Ideally, their mother and father, but if not, a mother and father is the next best thing. If we have expended every single resource and every single effort to ensure that every kid has that and has access to that right, then I will say it's hard for me to say, "Mm, no, you know, two men still can't adopt the child who is languishing in an orphanage even while knowing that the ideal is for that child to have a mother and a father. So yeah, I agree with you, but I don't think I've articulated it as explicitly as you did at the end. So thank you so much. Where can people find your book, learn more about them before us, maybe even follow your speaking dates? You're a busy woman. So uh, tell people how they can yeah. follow you. Um, Twitter is the place you get all of my opinions. Advo underscore Katie. Um, thenbeforeus.com is the place you can find us online. Subscribe at the bottom. We just launched a podcast. You'll be getting all kinds of children's rights um, information, headlines. We're going to be interviewing some incredible family um, scholars as well. So we will fortify you. I think, though, if you want to be an expert, if you really want to understand all of these issues, um, how they're really manifestations of the same question, are you protecting or are you violating the rights of children? The book will make you an expert. Then before us, why we need a global children's rights movement. You are going to be confronted with, you know, over a hundred stories of kids who are raised in modern families. Um, you're going to have to look them in the eye at the struggles, identity struggles, the mother hunger, the father hunger, the primal wound, the instability that they experience when children are forced to sacrifice for adults and not the other way around. And the reality is you're, you're some of their only hope. Like the politicians have abandoned these questions in a lot of ways. Celebrities obviously are not going to be any kind of moral leader or offer us any kind of clarity on these questions. It's really just you, ordinary mom and dad, you Christian woman who is going to be able to champion their rights um, and speak out on their behalf. And the book is probably the best tool you're going to find to be an effective advocate. Mm. Thank you so much, Katie. I am so thankful for the work that you do. Please keep going and God bless you and may he continue to multiply your message. Um, Appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me again. Okay, y'all, let me tell you about Patriot Mobile. It is time to switch from those progressive mobile companies that unfortunately are donating your money to causes and politicians that are fighting against you. You should instead switch to Patriot Mobile. It's America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. It offers the same dependable nationwide coverage, but without the progressive politics. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you are sending a message that you support things that they support, like free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, the Second Amendment, military, veterans, first response, These are the things that Patriot Mobile cares about. Go to patriotmobile.com slash 
Alley. You'll get free activation today. Their 100% US-based customer service team makes switching really, really easy. PatriotMobile.com slash Alley for free activation. PatriotMobile.com slash Alley. Hey guys, if you love this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks. Thanks.